We are now in the second week of our series on prayer, and today we'll be looking at James 5, 13 through 18. My intention with this whole series is really that it would just be really practical, insanely practical, and that it would be layers. That each Sunday, each service, we would have a new layer of what prayer is, what prayer is for, and then we're going to build a little house, a house of prayer. And then at the end of the summer, hopefully you come away and you are blessed you have, you have been taught how to pray, why to pray, to pray, and eventually, hopefully, you come away and you're renewed and excited to pray. That's, that's my prayer. That's my goal uh, with this sermon series. So I hope, I hope the Lord would bless that. Before we get into the text, I want to address uh, a really important question. And this is a question that sort of looms heavy over us when we talk about prayer. You've probably heard it or you've probably even thought it yourself. If God is sovereign, then why pray? Jesus himself in Matthew 6, 8, he says, Your father knows what you need before you ask him. And so the logical thing, you you say, well, okay, then why do I have to ask? Does prayer really change anything? Does it really do anything? To which we answer, of course. Of course it does. Prayer does not change God But it does affect history. And the common way we explain this is to say that God ordains both the ends and the means to those ends. There's a theologian, Dr. John Frame. He just said this recently. He said, God ordains prayer as a means to change history. There are things that happen because of prayer and things that do not happen because of no prayer. Now, of course, prayer does not change the eternal plan of God. But within that eternal plan are many plans for means and ends. And so God ordains that crops will grow, but not without water and the sun. He ordains that people will be saved, but ordinarily not without the teaching of the word. And he ordains that we will have everything we truly need, but not without prayer. So is prayer important? You see, God has elected for himself a people and he's ordained the foolishness of preaching and the gospel, the power of the gospel as the means to that end. God works through evangelism and he's ordained missionaries and average church folk to go out and to preach the gospel, to go out and tell people the good news. He works through teachers to instruct children. He works through doctors to heal. He works through pilots To get people from one place to the next place. He works through governments to enact his justice. And we could go so forth and so on. And so so God uses the the means to get to the ends. And so we could just say, you know, it doesn't matter. God commands you to pray. (laughs) So you should pray. Which is true. God does command you to pray. But along with that, we should pray because God has ordained our prayers as the means to enact his holy will. Think about that. I mean, think of, if you stop and just think about that, it's really remarkable, isn't it? And then if you reverse the question, it, it actually makes more sense. If God is not sovereign, why pray at all? You see, that's actually a better question. If God's not in control of everything, then my prayers won't make any difference. You see, I'll just pray, but he can't really do things about, so, you know, I'm not going to pray for my friend to come to faith. 
Because God can't really do anything about it, right? Well, no, wrong. And then if you expand on that, why evangelize? Why become missionaries? Why pray for healing, for nations, for rulers? Why pray for anything if God is powerless to do whatsoever he pleases? Well, it's a silly question now, isn't it? Why pray if God is sovereign? We pray precisely because he's sovereign. You see, if he, if he says, I've elected a certain people for myself, then let the nations be glad. Let missionaries rejoice that they're not wasting their time. If Jesus says, my sheep will hear my voice, then every time I get up here behind the pulpit, I, I can take joy in knowing that his word will not return void. And that his sheep will come and hear and receive and believe. And if he's ordained prayer as the means by which mountains shall be moved and people shall be healed and the heavens should be stopped up, then let us pray. We should be people of prayer. Prayer is rooted and established in God's sovereignty, not apart from God's sovereignty. I think about it this way. I've been married now for 11 years. I've known my wife Ashley for longer than that. And at this point, I can kind of read her mind. I know what she's thinking before she says it. You know, I've committed myself to a lifetime of women's studies with one person. (laughs) And so I know my wife like the back of my hand. I know her very well. But I love to hear her speak her mind. I know she loves me. I love to hear her say it. My kids and I will be sitting there watching TV and they'll go, Daddy, Daddy, did you just hear what he said? And then they'll, they'll repeat exactly what the person Jess said, which we all heard, and I go, yeah, I did hear that. I love to hear them. I love to hear their mind. I love to hear what's going on in their head. Beloved, God loves to hear you. He loves to comfort his children. He loves to wipe away tears. He loves to hold you intimately in prayer. When I was starting this, I talked to someone and they said, you know, my problem is is when I pray, I pray at night and I fall asleep in prayer. And I said, oh, but isn't it lovely when you hold a baby and they fall asleep when you're talking to them? And I think sometimes God likes to hold us as we fall asleep in prayer. We're his children. He loves us. And so prayer does not change God. Thanks be. But it does change us. And it does really change and affect history. Well, our text today is all about this. It's all about the power of righteous prayer and the fact that prayer actually does something. Three points from the text here in James today. The first point is this. We should pray and then we should sing. We should pray and sing. The second point is what is God's response to our prayer? And thirdly, the power of righteous prayer availeth much. So let's read the text and then no no surprise, we're going to pray. James 5, 13 through 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. 
The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Jesus, would you teach us to pray? Would you teach us to pray? We don't know how. We don't do it. We pray wrongly too many times, Lord. Too many times we pray weakly. We pray with a lack of boldness, with a lack of fervency, and so we need you to teach us. Lord, would you make this text come alive today? Would you help us to see something new about prayer that we didn't know before, that we might worship you and pray to you rightly? Jesus, we love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, if we start here, we're looking at verses 13 through 14. This is extremely practical advice, right? That's my, my intention. I want this to be practical advice for your prayer life. And James says, if you're suffering, you should pray. If you're cheerful, you should sing praises. And you might say, well, <laughs> duh. But is that, is that always your first thought when you're suffering? Do you pray? Or when something wonderful happens... Is your first thought to sing praises to God's name and to to rejoice? Well, it's not always my first response. And so James is telling us there are things as believers that should be our first response. There are different seasons of life and different times. and, And in times of great affliction, those times must be times of great prayer. God's people should pray. We should pray alone. We should pray together. We should pray for one another. We should pray in organized situations. We should have called to action prayer. If something big is going on in the country, I want us to call to you to pray. We need to be praying for this or praying for that. And in like manner, in times of joy, we should sing. We should sing alone. We should sing together. We should sing to one another. We should have organized times of prayer. You know, once on something we used to do and and we need to do again. We did a hymn sing and we need to get together and just have times of praying and and singing. Paul says in Ephesians 5 19 that we should address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with our heart. You see, singing is a gospel ordinance. It's a command. Good singing, bad singing, young and old singing. Make a joyful noise singing. I've quoted it before, but it's so good. Martin Luther said, when I cannot pray, I always sing. And really the beauty of what James says here is that we could reverse it, couldn't we? Is anyone among you suffering? Let him sing. Let him sing. Is anyone cheerful? Let them pray. Different seasons of life. And different emotions, they call for prayer and praise and coming before the sovereign God in worship. And then we have this interesting little part in verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now that, again, practical advice, strangely enough, rarely utilized. And, and the hesitancy of people in our day and age to actually ask for help is, is really astonishing. You know, you should, you should seek prayer from the leadership of the church. We, we, that's what we're here for. It's our duty as elders to pray 
for you, to pray over you, to come to you and minister to you and and to love you. You're not a bother to us. You're not an inconvenience to us. And the Bible actually tells us as elders, we watch over your souls as those who must give an account. I have to give an account for you. And so I need to know about you. I need to know what I can be praying about. We, need, we want to come to you. We want to love you. So call us and let us pray for you. The last bit here a little uh, about the anointing oil is a little bit confusing. And I, I, I kind of did a deep dive on this. I read a whole bunch of different commentators. What's going on with the oil? Uh, everyone takes it in different ways. <laughs> I mean, there's like four or five different ways you could take it. But the important thing to note is that it's the prayer that's linked to the saving of the sick person, right? It's the, it's the prayer that is, is ascribed to the, the healing, not the oil, but to God. It's the prayer of faith prayed through the power of Christ that will save the sick. So you don't need to read that. You know, people have this tendency, they read parts like that in the Bible, and then they make entire doctrines about it. You know, they go, well, we got to go buy oil. You know, no, we don't need to start buying oil. The oil is not magical. You know, it's not an essential oil miracle that's happening here. It's probably olive oil. It's probably just olive oil. It's the prayer. It's the prayer that is prayed, and it's the power of God that heals. Which leads to our next point. What is God's response to to the prayer? What is God's response? How will he respond to us when we pray in faith? Verse 15 through 16. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. In the court of Alexander the Great was a philosopher, and he was a philosopher of some ability. He was very wise and smart, but he had no money. So he was a poor philosopher. We have plenty of those in our day and age, I believe. And he asked Alexander the Great for financial help, and Alexander said, I want you to go to the treasury and take out whatever you need. So the man requested an amount equal to our day and age, $50,000. And the treasurer refused. He said, I I need to verify this amount before I just give you $50,000. And so he goes to Alexander and he, he asks him this thing. And the ruler replies, pay the money at once. This philosopher has done me a singular honor. By the largeness of his request, he has shown me that he understood both my wealth And my generosity. Listen again. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. I wonder sometimes. What's the largeness of our requests. Before God. Right before chapter 5. James says this in chapter 4. 2 through 3. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive. Because you ask wrongly. To spend it upon your passions. And so he gives us a little format here. What is the prayer of faith? We want to ask rightly, what is the prayer of faith that's being offered here? I see a few hallmarks of it here. The first one is this. It's a prayer prayed based upon the largeness of God's generosity. You see, it's actually a prayer based on how big God is, how big, you know, he is sovereign. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He can give us whatever we ask. 
And too many times, how many, you know, you pray and you pray something like this. Hey, God, oh, I'm so sorry to bother you. And God, if you're able, and I'm sorry to even ask this. I know I'm, I know I'm being an inconvenience. I mean, and if you can, would you please, would you heal my cat? Can God heal your cat? <laughs> what a silly thing. Of course, God's able. He's willing. He can do all things. But we're so weak in the way we ask for it. And to top it all off, he says he loves us. He loves us. And so we should pray. We should pray with boldness. You know, the Bible says we go with confidence in prayer. And then we leave the matter in God's hands. Obviously, God does not grant healing for every prayer of faith, right? You can, again, you can read this and take it all way off the deep end. Paul prays for the thorn in his flesh to be removed. Did, did Paul not pray enough with enough faith? Did he not pray the prayer of faith? God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Jesus prays in the garden. Did Jesus not have enough faith? My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Did Jesus just not have enough faith? You see, sometimes it's God's answer to say, my grace is sufficient. And then we pray and we know that many are healed. Many are healed daily. And then there are still others who are not healed simply because we do not ask. The second thing is that a prayer of faith is a fervent prayer. That word fervent just means it has a passionate intensity about it. In times of illness or sorrow, you don't come cold. You don't come emotionless. If, you're, if your child is sick or hurting, you know, Lord, could you heal my child? You know, you come with intensity. You're desperate for God to hear, hear your prayer. Are we chosen people of God or the frozen people of God? Are we like the lukewarm church in Laodicea? How does that work for them? They get spat out. And so God says, be zealous in prayer. Come come with your heart. Come with emotions. Pour yourself out before me. Third thing is we must ask rightly. Again, this is James 4.3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. That means there's a wrong way to pray. We've been talking about the right ways to pray. Well, there's a wrong way to pray. And in that particular context, James is linking it with a selfish prayer. It's a prayer without faith. It's a prayer that acts as if God owes you something. Give me something. Give me more. Because I want it. It's with sin in your heart. And that's the fourth hallmark. What is the prayer of faith? 15 through 16. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be forgiven healed. Now this is very interesting because James couples physical healing with the forgiveness of sins and with prayer. And so in this case, sickness is sent as a punishment maybe for some particular sin or, or, and that sin through confession and prayer will be pardoned and the sickness will be removed. And then we know, of course, because of our sin nature, sin is always the root of all sickness. You know, when, when you stub your toe, it's because of sin. <laughs> because the world's not perfect. Because something's wrong with the world. And James says, you're quick to cry out 
to God for relief, which you should. But you should also say, Lord, forgive me of my sin. Because sin's the issue here. And if that illness or that trouble's not removed, then like Paul, we may rejoice. Because God has seen fit in the continuance of it. He's going to give us more grace and more mercy. His, his power will be made perfect in our weakness. The God who works all things together for our good and for his glory will do what is right. The other thing about this, the fifth hallmark, is that confession is to be made to one another. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. When we think about confession, again, we think about sins. We go and confess our sins before the Lord. But confession is really more than that. Mutual confession and prayer brings healing both physically and spiritually. I wonder how many in this room are suffering in silence for some reason or another. Maybe a sin, an unconfessed sin, some sort of illness that you don't want to talk about, some sort of pain in your life. Have you ever known someone who suffered in silence? Oh, didn't Tim have it all together? What happened with him? He had it all together. Oh, he suffered in silence. If you're aware, I'm sure you are, the statistics are not good. Antidepressants are way up. Suicide rates have increased 36% in 10 years. I work with students. Anyone who works with students will tell you that teens have a whole assortment of issues. And we carry around all this anxiety and this guilt and this pain and this sorrow and past sorrows. And we say to ourselves, we just have to bottle that up. We just have to handle it alone. You know, nobody, I don't want to bother anyone else. And James says, call for the elders. (laughs) Call for the elders. Call for your brothers and sisters. Confess. Not just confession of sins, your fears and your worries, and your hurts, and your cares. You see, sin hates that. Sin demands you to isolate. Sin says, no, no, no. You don't need anyone else. You got this. You can handle this. And Satan wants nothing more than to isolate you in your own little head, in your own little house, and say, you have to, you know, nobody cares. Nobody cares about you. Did you know that you're the only person who's ever suffered in the way you're suffering? That's not true. And yet Satan just feeds you that lie. Nobody understands. But confession utterly demolishes the power of Satan. It demolishes the power of secret sin. It cannot hold you anymore when you take it before the Lord. It destroys shame and guilt. It washes you clean in the precious blood of Christ. When you confess to someone, it's a weight That's lifted off your shoulders. And it doesn't have to be detailed. It could be something as simple. Hey, I'm dealing with sin in my life. And I need accountability. I need some sort of deliverance. I need you to pray for me. I have have a private illness. And oh, I would just covet your prayers every single day. I would love a text. How are you doing today? You see, this is the beauty of the body of Christ. We love each other. We love each other and we need each other. There's intimacy here. There's, there's love because there's sinners in this room. It's a hospital. 
You're here for help. You're not here because you got it all together. And so James says, confess, pray together, hold each other and be healed. And the final part in verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. It availeth much. And when we think about that word righteous, we usually think about, you know, some morally upstanding individual. That's not us, right? It's just some, some guy out there and he's righteous and, you know, Ferris Bueller, he's a righteous dude. But not us. Is that what James is, is saying here? Prayer is only for those moral do-gooders. You see, if that's the case, we're in trouble. Because the Bible says there are none righteous. No, not one. But you see, Jesus didn't come into the world to make bad people good. He came to make dead men and women alive. And the resurrection business is booming. You see, that's the problem. When you come to church and you think it's just about, you know, I'll be better morally and I'll, I'll just be an upstanding citizen. That's not what Jesus came to. He came to make you alive in him. He came to change you from the inside out. And so this is righteousness in the gospel sense. These are, these are people who love the Lord. These are people who do not approve of iniquity. They hate the sin in their heart. Psalm 66, it was what we read for our call to worship. 66.18. David says, If I had regarded iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not hear my prayer. And so effective prayer is offered by righteous individuals who are righteously hidden in Christ. If you recognize that the grounds of your righteousness now sits in heaven, this is your prayer. Jesus Christ alone. And as you walk with him, it's your personal walk, and it's a consistent walk in righteousness that is found in him alone. That's the righteous prayer of faith. So it's prayed with fervency. It's prayed with faith in God. He's going to actually do it. He's going to hear me. He's going to accomplish it. And it's prayed based on the righteousness you possess through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 3.22. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. You see, it's a gift. It's a gift. And if you've been a Christian for any, any length of time, you're, you're starting to come see a pattern. Gift. Gift, 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 gift. I mean, you, you, you showed up at the party. You didn't bring anything. Jesus provides everything we need. And so you, you are abiding in Christ. What does that mean to abide in Christ? You are engrafted into him. You are bearing much fruit in the good works through your abiding in him. Jesus says, if you abide in me, you'll keep my commandments. You will bear fruit in accordance with the righteousness that you possess by faith. That's why James, when we come to the, you know, we come to James and he says, faith without works is a dead faith. And that's because a tree that's rooted and established in Jesus will bear fruit. It can't do anything else. It can't help it. An orange tree can't stop being an orange tree just because it wants to be. You will bear fruit if you abide in Jesus Christ. The love of Christ compels us to do this. Again, the works that we even do are prepared in advance for us to do. It's, all, it's a gift. And so we pray. Final point, the power of righteous prayer availeth much. The very end here, verse 16. 
on. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. The evangelist Leonard Ravenhill once said this. He said, no man is greater than his prayer life. The pastor who is not praying is playing. The people who are not praying are straying. We have many organizers, but few agonizers. Many players and payers, few prayers, many singers, few clingers, lots of pastors, few wrestlers, many fears, few tears, much fashion, little passion, many interferers, few intercessors, many writers, few fighters. Failing here, we fail everywhere. See, we have to be people of prayer. And James says, Elijah was a man who prayed. And he could have picked out really, I mean, just innumerable instances of of people praying in Scripture and having those things answered. But he picks this one. And, and And I think he picks it because it's so miraculous. It's so absurd. I mean, if I said, who among you today will pray for three years and six months that God would shut heaven? You go, what? I can't do that. And James says, why not? Why not? Was, 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 was Elijah some sort of subhuman demigod? You see, that's our tendency. When we read the Bible, we go, well, I couldn't, I'll, I'm not one of the prophets. I'll never be like David. I couldn't be like Abraham or Moses or Daniel. Why not? They're, they're sinful. They're just like you. And you do yourself a great disservice when you read these accounts of sinful brothers and sisters and think, well, I can never do something heroic for the Lord. I can never pray like that. I can never be a missionary. I can never do X, Y, and Z. James says, Elijah had sins just like we do. He was just called by God. And he was heard not based upon his merit, but simply because of the efficacy and power of prayer through God. Sadly, much of our prayer is not effective because it's, again, it's half-hearted. It lacks fervency. We, we ask God to care about something which it seems like we care very little about ourselves. We aren't trying to emotionally persuade God, but rather we're aligning our hearts to His. I mean, have you ever wondered how a sinner like David could be called a man after God's own heart? Well, he prayed. He prayed and he confessed and he repented. He was constantly praying, Lord, let us weep over the things that you hate. And Lord, let us rejoice over the things that you love. Align your heart to God. The more you pray, the more you'll do that. And then as you pray, you'll be fully persuaded that you have not prayed in vain. You will will know that God has heard you. You will connect your prayers to all the promises of God, which are yes in Jesus Christ. And so prayer, James says, is the key which will open and shut the very gates of heaven. Now, one passing glance at the world today will tell you that we are in desperate need of of God to move, aren't we? I mean, I'm not telling any... Tales out of school there. Everyone wants revival. 
But very few are willing to get on their hands and knees and actually pray for it to happen. Elijah prayed, he shut down the stock market. I mean, he killed the economy with one prayer. He prayed and he said, no rain. Sorry, it's not happening. And then he says, hey, clouds, start up again. They said, okay. He cared more about God's glory than his own personal welfare. Again, Leonard Ravenhill says, the reason we do not have revival is because we are content to live without it. You see, revival's too costly, isn't it? We don't want our pleasant little lives disrupted. I don't want God to shake my boat because it means I might get a little wet. And revival would mean a lot of extra work, wouldn't it? And so we lament, you know, churches are closing. We see the statistics. Memberships are down. Our culture's degrading by the minute. But we are paralyzed because we are impotent in prayer. When the prophets prayed, kings and nations trembled. When the early church prayed, the enemies of God said, these people are turning the world upside down. Would anyone say that about the church today? They think they're winning. Where are the prophetic voices? Where is the passion and the zeal for revival in our day and age? Someone might say, well, you see, Heath, it's because we just need more resources. Maybe we just need more information or, or, or more winsome message. You know, it's better branding. We just have to have better branding. We have to have more gimmicks to get people in the door. And to that I say, more resources. <laughs> we have hundreds of podcasts. We don't need more podcasts. Millions of books, countless web pages, Bible apps, theology apps, parachurch ministries, TV programs, churches on every corner, missionaries all across the world. Millions upon millions upon millions of dollars being donated. And the world's falling apart. Our culture is falling apart. More information. Beloved, what more can he say to you than to you he hath said? To you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. There's, there is no more information because you don't need more information. You have everything you need right here. And you say a better message. <laughs> there is no better message than the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no kinder Savior that will ever be found than Jesus Christ our Lord. Branding? No, what we need is men and women who will pray. We need men of faith who will preach and teach the gospel with clarity and boldness. We need women who get on their knees and petition the almighty God of heaven and earth for this generation. That is what will change the world. That will bring revival about. We say, Lord, teach us to pray. If you came to me and you said, Heath, I've decided that for this whole month, instead of tithing, I'm going to spend every minute for every dollar I would have given in prayer. I would say, deacons, stop passing the plate. <laughs> because I would be more appreciative of that than $300 million. $300 million or 300 righteous men and women praying, I'll take the prayers. Thank you very much. They will do more good. Which would you choose? You see, I'd rather be mighty in prayer before God than the mightiest of preachers before men because me and God alone are the majority. One such man like this was a 
a wonderful pastor named Dr. Edward Payson. And he was known as Praying Payson. He was a pastor in Portland, Maine, nearly 200 years ago. In 1806, just a few years after the Declaration of Independence, America was devastated by severe depression. And this was such a dark period in Dr. Payson's life. He, he records it in his diary. He writes, business is stagnated. Many are failing. Hundreds have been thrown out of an employment. They are destitute. I tremble for my poor country. I fear our sins have helped call down judgment upon us. Others who have no God, they have lost their reason. They worry incessantly and are apparently dying of broken hearts. Does this sound like us today? Dr. Payson lived his life penniless during those hard times. And yet despite all this, every single day through humility and fervent prayer, he said, Lord, revival. Send revival. Send us revival. He testifies. He writes, In the evening I was favored with such great prayer and fervency in prayer. It seemed as if God would deny me nothing. I wrestled for multitudes of souls, and I could not help hoping there would be revival. And within days, praying Payson saw his prayer answered. Fresh revival swept over his penniless congregation. After his death, they went to his room, and they found four grooves on his floor. Two for his knees and two for his hands, where he had worn away in prayer. Don't you want that? Have you ever known someone like that? When they start to pray, time stops. And you know there's been a paradigm shift. There's been a cosmic shift in reality where heaven has opened up and it's them and God and you're there and you're watching it happen. Does prayer change things? It changes everything. Changes everything. And how much more should we who have been buried with Christ and raised with him in newness of life, how much more should we approach that throne daily with confidence? Lord, teach us to pray. Are any of you here today suffering? You should pray. <laughs> you should pray. You should run to Christ. Are any of you here today cheerful? I want you to sing about it. Sing this last hymn with gusto. Are any of you sick? Then we're coming over this week, whether you like it or not. <laughs> we're coming. We want to we love you. We want to pray for you. We want to minister to you. And if any of you here today don't know about any of this, who is Jesus? What is this prayer thing all about? This is your day, isn't it? This is your day to come before him in prayer and repent Confess and believe. You see, if we want to change the world, what do we have to do? We need to pray. We pray and then we work. Lord, teach us to pray. Let's pray.